Welcome to Forward Talks, a podcast by Goombook about moving towards sustainability in the region and beyond. I'm Tatiana Antonelli. I'm joined on today's episode by Paul Newham, the director of the SDG2 Advocacy Hub, which aims to bring together NGOs, nutritionists, campaigners, as well as the civil society and the private sector to help achieve SDG2 by 2030. I caught up with Paul when he was in Dubai to release a manifesto in Arabic alongside some powerhouse local chefs. I wanted to know more about how he got started, his role with the hub, as well as their chef's manifesto. I see life very much as a bit of a journey and, you know, we are formed by the places and spaces that we come from. Um, and I grew up uh, with parents who lived and worked around the world and so we had a very global upbringing. I lived in India for some of my childhood in Bangladesh and then I was in uh, Africa, in Malawi, um, Zimbabwe, South Africa for some of um, my childhood. And so um, as, as life went on, I always saw the world as a very global place and, and coming from Australia, we're an island that's quite isolated in many ways from part of the world. And so Australians tend to travel more um, and really get out there to see the world. And so um, from a, a starting point, I saw the world in a very global nature. Um, when it connected then to food and food security um, is I also had parents that worked in that kind of humanitarian space. And so we were very exposed to issues of inequality, um, challenges around the world in different uh, parts of the world. And so when you, when you see that, you kind of also acknowledge some of the, the differences and the challenges. And then when you pair that with culture and different cultures, you also see how food connects to culture. And so I think, you know, for me, that's kind of where things started. It was understanding that the world's different. There's many different realities out there. There's also many different um, cultures which have rich traditions of food and that food connects to ingredients. And so that coming together into this kind of global nature really elevated food and the importance of that. I also personally love gardening. So that's kind of my pastime is getting out in the garden, being creative, getting my hands dirty, um, growing vegetables, things like that. So that was really key. And then also the other is cooking and so getting into the kitchen and cooking. And so food and global and then this kind of love of culture and seeing that inequality all kind of came together in this kind of connection to um, food security and this food system space. So you felt the need of taking action. Yeah. What was your first Uh, step forward, like your first action? In Australia, there's a, a program that's been running for many, many years by an organization called World Vision, which is a big international INGO. So it works in development work around the world. And it ran a program that um, was called the 40-hour famine. And this was where basically um, it started not long after the, the famine, in, the big famine in Ethiopia. And what it was designed to do was to get young people that live in one part of the world to experience a little bit of what hunger feels like um, and at the same time raise some funds for supporting people that are hungry. And so they asked people to go without food for 40 hours and ask people to sponsor them. And so when I was 13, that's something I signed on to do. And, and just that experience, even though it's, you can't compare what it's like to live in that space, that experience of just 
as you get to the 24 hour mark, your, your stomach starts to kind of, you, you get those grumblings. That whole experience was a, a really um, transformational in that sense where you, you understand something of, you know, what food means to us. And when you don't have it, and that's kind of, a, 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 it's not there, how does that impact you? And so I think, you know, when I think back, that was when I was 13, I did that for the first time. And that program, you know, was one of these moments which you just kind of connected this concept with a, a feeling or an experience in, in yourself. And so that was kind of a start. I ended up actually going and working for World Vision for a number of years and running that program. Of course. I think you should run this here as well. It would have such an impact. Yeah, it's, a, it's always, it's become... A little more challenging as the world's become, you know, foods and eating and not eating and all of the challenges around food have become a bit more complex. Um, but it was a very powerful experience. Um, and, you know, I've talked to many people, many friends that went through that experience and they all go back to that experience as a real transformational moment. Even people like Hugh Jackman, um, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, different people all, all, all were exposed to this program. And, and they say it was just a, a way for people in a certain part of the world to really have this real personal experience of connecting what that, what, what that reality is for so many people in the world still. I'm definitely going, going to do this with my children. I don't know how much they're going to love me at the beginning, but, <laughs> but I think it's really transformational. It's, and, and I mean, other parts of the world, they do 24 hours. Some people do um, 30 hours. Australia was the kind of hardcore. They did 40 um, and there's something about 40. You start on like a Friday night and go through to Sunday or something, and it's it's quite a, an experience. But I think this idea of fasting is very, you know, um, connected to many religions, connected to many different, um, you know, health-related things now. And 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 fasting is is something that is important, and and it helps you to identify or to experience. And I think this is really key for us to think about food as well. True, and also it's. Uh a symbol also of wanting change and requiring change. If you look at all the people who fast and have been fasting in the past, look at Gandhi, you know, exactly. to ask for change. Um, so all this led you to create the Hunger Hub, uh, SDG2. Yeah. yeah, so I, I, I was, as I mentioned, I work, was working for this organization, World Vision, for a number of years and ended up in their global team. And then uh, decided um, in twenty end of twenty fifteen, I needed to do something different. You know, I'd been there for quite some time, and so I, I stepped out and ended up at the World Food Program in Rome, um, and was working there and uh, working on a number of projects. And then ended up in Peru, working with the Peruvian um, government and the, the, a number of chefs, Gaston Acurio and other chefs in Peru, to work on a project that um, was addressing anemia through creating recipes that were, you know, high in iron and, and using chefs and the power of their celebrity, I suppose, in Peru. Um, and at that time, there, there was this project going on to look at sustainable development goals and particularly goal two. Um, goal two is around zero hunger is the tag, but it includes within it uh, nutrition security, biodiversity, agriculture, climate issues. Um, and in the sustainable development goals, what that meant was to achieve goal two, we were bringing together different communities of practice, farmers, agriculture kind of community, the nutrition community, which traditionally is more focused around health, and then also the food security, which can be very much focused around humanitarian. And so you've got kind of these different networks. And so to achieve a goal when it's all tied together, 
you have to think in a more integrated way. And so the hub was set up to help catalyze, convene and connect private sector, UN and civil society groups to really help them to be more effective in the way that they're campaigning, um, their way that they're communicating. And so um, I was asked at the time, this had been in the works and they said, could you come in and, and, and lead the um, secretariat for that and help us really bring this to life? And so um, I said yes and, and took that on in 2016. What progress have you seen? Because one of the big questions we hear recent, we have heard recently is, what is the progress on SDGs? And of course, each country, each city, they have a different uh, yeah. approach and different progress. What did you have you seen? I mean, in all these years working on this specific SDG, yeah. what is the progress? So I think there's a it's it's a hard question to answer. On, on one side, it's hard, it's it's easy because you can say, look, the indicators show that we still have high numbers of hungry people. We still have people not getting access to healthy diets. We still have big challenges around our environmental footprint. Um, when you look at that, then that's a, a not a very you know satisfying story because it's 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 a story of challenge and it's a story of not necessarily meeting those goals. Um, and so within that, I think you know that's 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 quite hard. But then you look at why and how, and you also look at some of the other elements of change. So. At the same time, we've got conflict, climate and COVID, which have really made a massive dent, these three Cs, in the impact of progress. And so where you look at it, you know, there was progress up until about four or five years ago on some of these SDG numbers. And we were seeing hunger numbers go down. We were seeing some of the change. That's reversed in the last little while because of climate impacts becoming more regular, conflict in certain parts of the world. And then in the last two years, COVID, which has broken supply chains and had lots of um, challenges around that. So if you think about that, I think this is where it becomes a, a more complicated story um, to be able to sort of say, yes, we've had progress. But within that, the world's population continues to grow. And so the numbers do necessarily they're a percentage of and so you know while we're not getting the overall number down the population of the world is going up and so as a percentage that's also got to be taken into account the other thing is that there's a lot more the sdgs were designed to bring together a development kind of plan or a game plan for all countries to see things in an integrated way and i think in the past we saw problems very much in a siloed way where we would have particular teams working on one problem but that, you know, is, is really challenging. And, and a good friend of mine used to talk about the fact that the world's a bit like a big global waterbed. And, you know, those waterbeds um, that you used to jump on and they'd pop the other person off the other side. Um, or a trampoline could be another analogy. But you push in one area and it pops out in another. The world's a little bit like that as well. So we might fix or have progress around climate impacts on food but then we have nutritional health impacts in another part of the world or those kinds of things. So to me, that's where, you know, the progress is, is needs to be seen as integrated. And I'm super excited that in the past uh, five years, what I've seen is now people are starting to talk about that. We're talking about impacts that have a food systems approach that bring together an understanding that we need to look at health benefits, climate benefits, 
We need to see things in a more joined up way. We need to see emergency response right through to development. We need to connect things. What I like about what you just said is that uh, finally we bring in the community. So, so far, SDGs have always been about governments, sometimes large corporations. But just recently, finally, we understand that we need to bring in the community, understand what the mm -hmm. SDGs are and how they can act. Yeah. And I think what you've done so far, and now you're going to be telling us more, is to engage with the community and, and everyone to understand their role. Can you tell us more, for example, about your uh, Chef Manifesto initiative? Yeah. I think when we first started this conversation, one of the things was we looked at the debates and the discussions that were going on globally um, and, and a lot of them were very scientific, they were very focused on policy, um, but they weren't necessarily connecting to everyday people or they weren't humanising some of that conversation. And so that works fine in a world where people just make decisions based on science or they make decisions based on good policy. But we know in the last five years, there's been a lot more political realities that our leaders globally in different parts of the world have, have used to make decisions. And it's often very much tied into popularism and different other elements. So you still need policy and you still need good science, but we also need to make sure that these messages connect with everyday people. And I think the sustainable development goals have that frame where they can do that. And so we looked at chefs as a connector. Chefs have an amazing presence online. We all have chefs that we know about, that we've seen on social media, that we would like to go and try their restaurant or we've got their cookbook or something like this. And, 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 and chefs have this ability to tell stories through plates of food, through bringing ingredients together. And they have this ability to also connect. They connect the farm, they connect what's grown at the farm with the plate. Um, and so we started to say, how do we help them become champions? They're, they're already doing great work. There's lots of chefs championing food waste, biodiversity, all these issues. And so we work with chefs in 35 countries to basically co-create and write with them a, a set of eight principles that are available for them to drive action on around the SDGs. And we took all the SDG indicators and all the language and then tried to make it accessible for chefs. And so that's resulted in this um, program called the Chef's Manifesto, which now has chefs in uh, 90 countries around the world that are kind of connected to this framework, advocating in their own space, in their own way. Um, chefs that are from fine dining restaurants right through to school canteens, from students through to veterans, um, and, and they use their platforms to try and drive change around the sustainable development goals. And it's been a really interesting way to, you know, as you said, bring the community in, a community that sometimes doesn't have a voice in a room. Um, they often are behind the scenes, but to bring them out front and get them to help also tell, tell that story from their perspective. And uh, I think uh, you're also here because you're about to launch, you know, the local chapter of yeah. Chef Manifesto in Arabic. Yes. So we've just um, translated uh, with the support of the Expo team. Um, we've translated the, the Chef's Manifesto into Arabic and we're, we're really working hard at the moment to, to really build a network here in the UAE um, and then obviously the region. Um, to, to really connect to this because obviously it's um, really important for people all over the world to engage in this and particularly in this region, there's a lot to learn about the, the space, the food security situation, 
um, the connections of cultures all coming together and really hoping that it will continue and build off this energy and excitement that's happened around the expo with bringing people in but connect farmers, chefs, others around this kind of new framework to give more energy towards the SDGs. I'm getting anxiety that Expo is about to finish because <laughs> it's been such a great uh, period uh, to have Expo and have all, you know, uh, incredible stories, a lot of impact. And now it's about to finish and it's like, what's going to be after Expo? But tell us more about the local chefs. Uh, who are they and how can we meet them or go and, uh, yeah. and learn more from them? So there's a number of chefs that we've engaged with um, that, that are from here and, and also live here. So Chef Sahar um, is, is uh, one of the, she just actually won uh, top pastry chef for Middle East and North Africa wow. with the world's 50 best. Um, and so she has been very involved. She's an Emirati chef. Um, and so when I met her, she, what stood out, she started to tell me about going with her father out into the desert and finding these um, different uh, elements, these different ingredients that come only when it rains. Um, and, and, and I was just captivated because I was like, wow, this local knowledge. I didn't, I look at the desert and I see sand. I don't see different ingredients and I wouldn't know where to look. And she started to tell me about all of these Emirati ingredients and then started to talk to me also about in a dry climate, you have to really preserve things. So when they do, when you do get them or they grow, you have to use pickling and preservation techniques to really extend the life of those ingredients. And so we started to talk about this and it was just great because it just brought a different perspective and helped me think, um, and this is what I love about chefs, when they meet across cultures, each, each chef has to look at the reality that they're in and how ingredients are available. What does local mean? What does seasonal mean? How do you approach that? Um, there's also Chef Manal Alem. She's based here. She um, uh, has a huge program. She's been involved um, with the Chef's Manifesto right from the beginning. Um, and she is an ambassador for the World Food Program as well. We're just in the process. We're going to be launching um, next week a whole series of recipes that she's designed that are in Arabic and English. Um, and, and these recipes are built around different principles with um, looking at, you know, school meals, and, but looking at biodiversity, looking at health, looking at um, uh, ingredients that are really important to include and how do you actually enhance traditional dishes to actually improve the nutrition um, of those dishes. And so she's launching that. She has a massive platform online all around the world. I think last year she had 300 million views on her 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 YouTube channel and program. We've also been talking very closely with ICCA, um, so the International Culinary um, Centre, to work with students, for example, and to talk to students about sustainability. Um, and then there's there's a number of other chefs that are based here that we're, we're building relationships with and trying to engage with this concept. Often we find they're already doing great work um, and it's not about us trying to help them do that, it's about us trying to create a language to connect the work that they're doing to this broader global network. I would love to introduce you here in Dubai to IGBA, the International Center for Saline Agriculture. Oh, I'd love to. It's incredible what they do. They they look at the future here by having, you know, just saline water uh, okay. in, in the event of not having any more sweet water. Oh, wow. And uh, they test on different crops to see how they react and if they are able to, you know, survive and you'll be surprised 
There's a uh, salicornia, for example, that yeah. uh, is a very, very important also from a nutritional point of view yeah. that grows really well in an arid environments with uh, saline water. But I'm sure we would need more chefs to understand what to do with salicornia. <laughs> so so you, you, you mentioned that we're, we're actually doing a dinner next week and there's salicornia that's growing at the expo site. Ah. There's a desert garden there and they are going to bring some of it for us to have the chefs uh work with and see how they can include it because apparently it's beautiful like it has a really good flavor um and so we're going to try and see what happens so i might be able to tell you next week some ideas amazing well i'll uh, i'll reach out yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very curious to know more yeah so going back to uh us normal people in the community what can we do in our everyday life how can we take action yeah, I think um, it's really important to think about breaking down some of these big challenges to everyone getting involved. Um, we, we've been uh, very actively involved last year in the UN Food System Summit and we were engaged um, in the public engagement campaign called Good Food for All. And it really is talking about this kind of what does good food mean? Um, you know, sometimes when you, you have that statement, people go, does it taste good or is it good for me or is it good for the planet? And this is the whole point. We need to think about our food more. And so I think the first thing is to, to really ask people, what does good food mean to you? Uh, good for the planet. So, you know, everyone has a slightly different starting point. So we want to get people thinking and then we want to drive action. And so we've launched a, an idea around this concept of sustainable Sundays where we ask people once a week to choose a healthy, um, climate-friendly meal. And so we don't tell you what that is. We give examples of different things from around the world. We're putting out recipes. Some of the chefs are putting recipes. Others are sharing recipes. Every, every Sunday there's a recipe sh shared on the channel. And so that's going to be 52 different recipes. The idea is you can take and you can create a meal on a Sunday that's healthy and climate friendly. It could be the ingredients you use. It could be, and that can be relative to what you normally eat, or it could be something completely different. But by taking these small actions, what we're, we're hoping people will see is that the choices they make around the food that they eat, where they get it from, the types of food can have a major impact on human health and a major impact on our planet. And that's just a simple thing that we can all do. We still will work with governments, we work with the UN, we work with business, you know, to try and improve them. But if people take choices and change what they're eating, that has a major impact. What is the super fast tip you can give someone like they're doing their shopping, what should they do? So at the moment, I think one of the big things is I think there's different ingredients and I think having a bit of biodiversity. So trying to, you know, pick a new ingredient and play with it, bring it into your, your menu. I would also say, you know, legumes or beans are really good. They're very good for the soil. Almost always they grow really fast, but they also add nitrogen. They add other things to the soil. And they're also really good for you. You know, they have a lot of the right micro macronutrients and proteins and different things. And so, you know, if you just want to choose a kind of family of ingredients, you know, beans, and that can be, you know, black beans in one part of the world or kidney beans or um, it can be, you know, different types of, you know, split peas and lentils. It can be any kind of pulse in that sense. But um, I think if you, you know, beans are a great place to start as well.
You can find out more at sdg2advocacyhub.org where you can read the chef manifestos and also visit goodfoodforall.org where you'll find different recipes to inspire you to add some biodiversity to your meal. Thank you for joining us on this episode. Forward Talks is brought to you by Goombook, where we hope to continue to change mindsets and help shape the global sustainability landscape. I'm your host, Tatiana Antonelli, and this episode was produced by Shira Disey. You can find out more, as well as our previous episodes, by visiting goombook.com podcast. And tell us what you thought by reaching out to us on Instagram at goombook, that's G-O-U-M-B-O-O-K. See you again soon.